Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are on Chapter 9, entitled Of the Sons of Master and Man. Life treads on life and heart on heart. We press too close in church and mark to keep a dream or grave apart. Mrs. Browning. The world-old phenomenon of the contact of diverse races of men is to have new exemplification during the new century. Indeed, the characteristic of our age is the contact of European civilization with the world's undeveloped peoples. Whatever we may say of the results of such contact in the past, it certainly forms a chapter in human action not pleasant to look back upon. War murder, slavery, extermination, and debauchery. This has again and again been the result of carrying civilization and the blessed gospel to the isles of the sea and the heathen without the law. Nor does it altogether satisfy the conscience of the modern world to be told complacently that all this has been right and proper. The fated triumph of strength over weakness, of righteousness over evil, of superiors over inferiors. It would certainly be soothing if one could readily believe all this, and yet there are too many ugly facts for everything to be thus easily explained away. We feel and know that there are many delicate differences in race psychology, numberless changes that our crude social measurements are not yet able to follow minutely, which explain much of history and social development. At the same time, too, we know that these considerations have never adequately explained or excused the triumph of brute force and cunning over weakness and innocence. It is then the strife of all honorable men of the 20th century to see that in the future competition of races, the survival of the fittest shall mean the triumph of the good, the beautiful, and the true. That we may be able to preserve for future civilization all that is really fine and noble and strong, and not continue to put a premium on greed and impudence and cruelty. To bring this hope premium on greed and impudence, excuse me, to bring this hope to fruition, we are compelled daily to turn more and more to a conscientious study of the phenomena of race contact, to a study frank and fair, and not falsified and colored by our wishes or our fears. And we have in the South as fine a field for such a study as the world affords, a field to be sure, which the average American scientist deems somewhat beneath his dignity and which the average man who is not a scientist knows all about, but nevertheless a line of study which by reason of the enormous race complications with which God seems about to punish this nation must increasingly claim our sober attention, study, and thought. We must ask what are the actual relations of whites and blacks in the South. And we must be answered, not by apology or fault-finding, but by a plain, unvarnished tale. In the civilized life of today, the contact of men and their relations to each other fall in a few main lines of action and communication. There is, first, the physical proximity of homes and dwelling places, the way in which neighborhoods group themselves, and the con continuity of neighborhoods. Secondly, and in our age, chiefest, there are the economic relations. 
the methods by which individuals cooperate for earning a living, for the mutual satisfaction of wants, for the production of wealth. Next, there are the political relations. The cooperation in social control and group movement and laying and paying the burden of taxation. In the fourth place, there are the less tangible but highly important forms of intellectual contact and commerce, the interchange of ideas through conversation and conference, through periodicals and libraries, and, above all, the gradual formation for each community of that curious tertium quid which we call public opinion. Closely allied with this comes the various forms of social contact in everyday life, in travel, in theaters, in house gatherings, in marrying and giving in marriage. Finally, there are the varying forms of religious enterprise, of moral teaching, and benevolent endeavor. These are the principal ways in which men living in the same communities are brought into contact with each other. It is my present task, therefore, to indicate, from my point of view, how the black race in the South meet and mingle with the whites in these matters of everyday life. First, as the physical dwelling, it is usually possible to draw in nearly every Southern community a physical color line on the map, on the one side of which whites dwell and on the other Negroes. The winding and intricacy of the geographical color line varies, of course, in different communities. I know some towns where a straight line drawn through the middle of the main street separates nine-tenths of the whites from nine-tenths of the blacks. In other towns, the older settlements of whites has been encircled by a broad band of blacks. In still other cases, little settlements or nuclei of blacks have sprung up amid surrounding whites. Usually in cities, each street has its distinct, distinctive color, and only now and then do the colors meet in close proximity. Even in the country, something of this segregation is manifest in the smaller areas and, of course, in the larger phenomena of the Black Belt. And that brings us, uh, we're on the, no, no change in the themes, no really changing the themes of these chapters. It's just a straight shot through. But I want to have a reflection. I think, I think what stands out to me, first what stands out to me is the... The, the first portion of this chapter sort of reminds me of the book Citizens, Cops, and Power and how they define community and how different, how community, the different forms of community, what those forms of community contained, how the difference between a neighborhood and community. Uh, and, and so I say that to say, as W.E.B. Du Bois sort of in a way, he sort of talk, he touches a little bit on multiple things that we've read before, and he speaks about he's he's speaking about the contact at the very beginning. He speaks about European contact with Africa and Asia and the Americas, and he speaks about in plain terms some of the the humongous negative effects that came from those from that contact, and I think that's one of the things that we sort of take for granted in the time period we live in so many things. It, it, it feels as if some things that are, that happen or have happened are were like things that were inevitable or things that had to go a certain way, uh, you know? And I think what's important to remember is that there were human beings and people that made choices and that 
created these ideologies and that created these structures and that uh, committed these acts of genocide and committed these acts of abduction and these acts of enslavement. And it's not, we, we shouldn't forget that we as human beings have the capacity to do those type of things, uh, you know, in mass. And the only way to prevent that type of ideology or that type of belief or that type of action from manifesting is to struggle against the seeds of it that have been planted and to struggle against the branches of it that come from the, the trees that have grown from those things. And so I don't think we can ever just look at things in the past and say, well, it's in the past, uh, it's not important or it happened before. There's no reason to know about it. A lot of times I think that's like how history is looked at. And I do firmly believe that history goes in cycles and history repeats itself. And where human beings, whether collectively or individually, tend to go through life and and have the same similar issues or similar options presented to them or have similar experiences and uh, it's important for us to understand people who have had those experiences before us, whether individually or collectively. So that way we can learn from the way that they handled their experiences or they handled their, uh, their cycle of life and we can try to progress from it. Uh, and so that's my first thought from the first section that we read. And then as we begin to get into the meat of what the chapter is going to be about, the interaction with black, of black people and white people amongst each other, I think that the way they spoke about, he, he spoke about how you if you went to these different towns, and some towns you could draw a line straight through, some towns would be more jagged. He spoke about the different ways that the segregation existed and that makes me think about a book we haven't read, but we will read eventually the book entitled the color of law and the, some of the concepts that they presented like redlining and Jerry redlining to keep black people in, uh, to keep black areas. Uh, I don't want to misdefine redlining, but redlining, gerrymandering, uh, all of these different things they talked about and like the difference between de facto segregation and de jure segregation. And even now in 2022, uh, there's so many American cities that are still segregated. And I think what's important to remember about the concept of segregation is that it's not the same thing as separation. Inherent in the concept of segregation is the fact that one portion of the that a part of the separation, that the separation is being forced upon pe a set of people. And also that within this separation, one group of people uh, is benefiting more than another group of people is benefiting. Okay. All this segregation by color is largely independent of that natural clustering by social grades common to all communities. A Negro slum may be in dangerous proximity to a white residence quarter, while it is quite common to find a white slum planted in the heart of a respectable Negro district. One thing, however, seldom occurs. The best of the whites and the best of the Negroes almost never live in anything like close proximity. It thus happens that in nearly every southern town and city, both whites and blacks see commonly the worst of each other. This is a vast change from the situation in the past, when, through the close contact of master and house servant in the patriarchal big house, one found the best of both races in close contact and sympathy 
while at the same time the squalor and dull round of toil among the field hands was removed from the sight and hearing of the family. One can easily see how a person who saw slavery thus from his father's parlors and sees freedom on the streets of a great city fails to grasp or comprehend the whole of the new picture. On the other hand, the settled belief of the mass of the Negroes that the Southern white people do not have the black man's best interests at heart has been intensified in later years by this continual daily contact of the better class of blacks with the worst representatives of the white race. Uh, and then I think one of the things that's important to remember about the some of the, the manner that W.E.B. Du Bois speaks in as we're reading these things is that he's one generation. He's, he's literally born two years after the, after the emancipation uh, of in the, the emancipation of the enslaved people and the 13th amendment is written. So he's uh, the first generation of free people. And so there are some concepts and some things that he says, which come off as, uh, sort of a respectability politics a little bit. You know, when he talks about the worst of the, the best of the Negroes was in the house, you know, that's coming from, I would assume from being so close to a generation of slavery where that might have been like uh, a thought that they believed, you know, whereas we can understand now that that's not necessarily a factual thing, that the best of the, the best or the smartest people or black people weren't necessarily the ones that were inside of the house, that it was uh, an amalgamation of different circumstances that led to somebody being inside the house. Uh, but I know that he was trying to make an analogy, but I just think that that's something that's important to point out. And, and the same thing there. Uh, all right, but let's uh, keep reading. Coming now to the economic relations of the races, we are on ground made familiar by study, much discussion, and no little philanthropic effort. And yet, with all this, there are many essential elements in the cooperation of Negroes and whites for work and wealth that are too readily overlooked or not thoroughly understood. The average American can easily conceive of a rich land awaiting development and filled with black laborers. To him, the Southern problem is simply that of making efficient working men out of this material by giving them the requisite technical skill and the help of invested capital. The problem, however, is by no means as simple as this. From the obvious fact that these working men have been trained for centuries as slaves, they exhibit, therefore, all the advantages and defects of such training. They are willing and good-natured, but not self-reliant, provident, or careful. If now the economic development of the South is to be pushed to the verge of exploitation, as seems probable, then we have a mass of working men thrown into relentless competition with the working men of the world, but handicapped by a training the very opposite to that of the modern self-reliant democratic laborer. What the black laborer needs is careful personal guidance, group leadership of men with hearts in their bosoms, to train them to foresight, carefulness, and honesty. Nor does it require any fine-spun theories of racial differences to prove the necessity of such group training after the brains of the race have been knocked out by 250 years of assiduous education and submission, carelessness, and stealing. After emancipation, it was the plain duty of someone to assume this group leadership and training of the Negro laborer. I will not stop here to inquire whose duty it was, whether that of the white ex-master who had profited by unpaid toil, 
or the Northern philanthropist whose persistence brought on the crisis, or the national government whose edict freed the bondman. I will not stop to ask whose duty it was, but I insist it was the duty of someone to see that these working men were not left alone and unguided without capital, without land, without skill, without economic organization, without even the bad protection of the law and order and decency. Left in a great land, not to settle down to slow and careful internal development, but destined to be thrown almost immediately into relentless and sharp competition with the best of modern working men under an economic system where every participant is fighting for himself and too often utterly regardless of the rights or welfare of his neighbor. And, man, that's a... One of the sayings that I had heard Du Bois coin that a lot of people reiterate is that black people were free, but that freedom meant that they were free to starve, free to be unhoused, uh, free basically to perish. And, and, and that's not what he said verbatim. But this paragraph that we just read right there captures that that concept. It really lets you understand that they they that there was no there was these pe they had exploited these people, these families, these human beings to such a point that they had wiped out all culture that they knew and replaced it with whatever culture that they seen fit. They had wiped off uh, all language. They had wiped out religion. They had wiped out families. They had wiped out uh, belief systems, ideologies. They had wiped out. They had completely changed the neurological brain of these people with the type of physical, emotional, and psychological trauma that they had inflicted upon them. And then when they were, and, and they profited off of it. It's not just, that's the other thing that has to be remembered is that it's not simply just the exploitation of these people. It's the profiting off of the exploitation uh, and not, and when I say, and, and of course, exploitation in some type of a way means there's some type of a profit. But when I use the word profit, I specifically am talking about not simply the capital or the money, but the way that they were able to uh, be able to win every war that they was able to win. They were able to win it because of the free, because of, 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 of black people, black people were involved in it, but also the slave labor that was happening in some way was making it so that they had men that were able to do other things or the women were able to do other things. Uh, the same thing when you, <clears throat> when it comes to the import and export, the reason they could become such a power is because they had a complete working class that was being unpaid for however long, uh, for however long, for hundreds of years, uh, 400 years. And, and so all of these things happen and then they freed these people are, are, are freed, are emancipated, uh, but they're not educated. They're not, they have no, they have no, no form, no system set up for them to be educated. They have no system set up for them to have homes. Not, not really, you know, we've read about how they had, they were putting the Freedmen's Bureau together. We've read about some of the things the government was, was implementing and working to implement, but they, they're, they didn't have enough care and empathy and for these people to put uh, together something that was going to be solid, structural and permanent. 
that was the that's the other thing that we have to remember is that they needed something for the amount of times that they had slavery existing. They were going to need something that was going to last just that long to remedy the effects of slavery. And they had to be and to be able to accept the the truth about how much of an impact slavery had had on these people. Uh, but we see here that those, that's not what, that's not what happened, that they left these people to be free with no land and uh, with white, white, with racist white people who were still trying to find ways to exploit them at every turn, if not kill them at, at turns. They left them with no way to become educated with no real health care uh, set in place with all of the things that, that, human beings would need to be able to survive. And so is that freedom? That's the question. For we must never forget that the economic system of the South today, which has succeeded the old regime, is not the same system as that of the old industrial North of England or of France with their trade unions, their restrictive laws, their written and unwritten commercial customs, and their long experience. It is, rather, a copy of that England of the early 19th century before the Factory Acts. The England that wrung pity from thinkers and fired the wrath of Carlisle. The rod of empire that passed from the hands of Southern gentlemen in 1865, partly by force, partly by their own petulance, has never returned to them. Rather, it has passed to those men who have come to take charge of the industrial exploitation of the New South, the sons of poor whites fired with the new thirst of wealth and power, thrifty and avaricious Yankees, shrewd and unscrupulous Jews. Into the hands of these men, the Southern laborers, white and black, have fallen, and this to their sorrow. For the laborers as such, excuse me, for the laborers as such, there is in these new captains of industry, neither love nor hate, neither sympathy nor romance. It is a cold question of dollars and dividends. Under such a system, all labor is bound to suffer. Even the white laborers are not yet intelligent, thrifty, and well-trained enough to maintain themselves against the powerful inroads of organized capital. The results among them, even, are long hours of toil, low wages, child labor, and lack of protection against usury and cheating. But among the black laborers, all this is aggravated. First, by a race prejudice which varies from a doubt and distrust among the best element of whites to a frenzy hatred among the worst. And, secondly, it is aggravated, as I have said before, by the wretched economic heritage of the freedmen from slavery. With this training, it is difficult for the free man to learn, to grasp the opportunities already open to him, and the new opportunities are seldom given him, but go by favor to the whites. Left by the best elements of the South, with little protection or oversight, he has been made in law and custom the victim of the worst and most unscrupulous men in each community. The crop line system, which is depopulating the fields of the South, is not simply the result of shiftlessness on the part of Negroes, but it is also the result of cunningly devised laws as to mortgages, liens, and misdemeanors, which can be made by conscienceless men to entrap and snare the unwary until escape is impossible. Further toil of, further toil of farce and protest of crime. 
I have seen in the black belt of Georgia an ignorant, honest Negro buy and pay for a farm in installments three separate times. And then in the face of law and decency, the enterprising Russian Jew who sold it to him pocketed money and deed and left the black man landless to labor in his own land at 30 cents a day. I've seen a black farmer fall in debt to a white storekeeper and that storekeeper go to his farm and strip it of every single marketable article, mules, plows, store crops, tools, furniture, bedding, clocks, looking glass, and all this without a warrant, without process of law, without a sheriff or officer, in the face of the law for homestead exemptions, and without rendering to a single responsible person any account or reckoning. And such proceedings can happen, and will happen, in any community where a class of ignorant toilers are placed by custom and race prejudice beyond the pale of sympathy and race brotherhood. So long as the best elements of a community do not feel in duty bound to protect and train and care for the weaker members of their group, they leave them to be preyed upon by these swindlers and rascals. This unfortunate economic situation does not mean the hindrance of all advance in the Black South or the absence of a class of Black landlords and mechanics who, in spite of disadvantages, are accumulating property and making good citizens. But it does mean that this class is not nearly so large as a fair economic system might easily make it, that those who survive in the competition are handicapped so as to accomplish much less than they deserve to, and that, above all, the personnel of the successful class is left to chance and accident, and not to any intelligent culling or responsible methods of selection. As a remedy for this, there is but one possible procedure. We must accept some of the race prejudice in the South as a fact, deplorable in its intensity, unfortunate in its results, and dangerous for the future, but nevertheless a hard fact which only time can efface. We cannot hope, then, in this generation, or for several generations, that the mass of the whites can be brought to assume that close, sympathetic, and self-sacrificing leadership of the blacks with their present situation so eloquently demands, which their present situation so eloquently demands. Such leadership, such social teaching and example, must come from the blacks themselves. For some time, men doubted as to whether the Negro could develop such leaders, but today, no one seriously disputes the capability of individual Negroes to assimilate the culture and common sense of modern civilization and to pass it on, to some extent at least, to their fellows. If this is true, then here is the path out of the economic situation, and here is the imperative demand for trained Negro leaders of character and intelligence, men of skill, men of light and leading college-bred men, black captains of industry and missionaries of culture, Men who thoroughly comprehend and know modern civilization and can take hold of Negro communities and raise and train them by force or precept and example, deep sympathy, and the inspiration of common blood and ideals. But if such men are to be effective, they must have some power. They must be backed by the best public opinion of these communities and able to will for their objects and aims such weapons as the experience of the world has taught are indispensable to human progress. Of such weapons, the greatest, perhaps, in the modern world is the power of the ballot. And this brings me to a consideration of the third form of contact between whites and blacks in the South, political activity. 
In the attitude of the American mind toward Negro suffrage can be traced with unusual accuracy the prevalent conceptions of government. In the 50s, we were near enough the echoes of the French Revolution to believe pretty thoroughly in universal suffrage. We argued, as we thought then rather logically, that no social class was so good, so true, and so disinterested as to be trusted wholly with the political destiny of its neighbors. That in every state, the best arbiters of their own welfare are the persons directly affected. Consequently, that is only by arming every hand with the ballot, with the right to have a voice in the policy of the state, that the greatest good to the greatest number could be attained. To be sure, there were objections to these arguments, but we thought we had answered them tersely and convincingly. If someone complained of the ignorance of voters, we answered, quote, educate them, end quote. If another complained of their venality, we replied, quote, disenfranchise them or put them in jail, end quote. And finally, to the men who feared demagogues and the natural perversity of some human beings, we insisted that time and bitter experience would teach the most hard-headed. It was at this time that the question of Negro suffrage in the South was raised. Here was a defenseless people suddenly made free. How were they to be protected from those who did not believe in their freedom and were determined to thwart it? Not by force, said the North. Not by government guardianship, said the South. That the ex-slaves could use the ballot intelligently or very effectively is something no one thought. But they did think that the possession of so great power by a great class in the nation would compel their fellows to educate this class to its intelligent use. Meantime, new thoughts came to the nation. The inevitable period of moral retrogression and political trickery that ever follows in the wake of war overtook us. So flagrant became the political scandals that reputable men began to leave politics alone and politics consequently became disreputable. Men began to pride themselves on having nothing to do with their own government and to agree tactically with those who regarded public office as a private prerequisite. In this state of mind, it became easy to wink at the suppression of the Negro vote in the South and to advise self-respecting Negroes to leave politics entirely alone. The decent and reputable citizens of the North who neglected their own civic duties grew hilarious over the exaggerated importance with which the Negro regarded the franchise. Thus it easily happened that more and more and more the better class of Negroes followed the advice from abroad and the pressure from home and took no further interest in politics leaving to the careless and the venal of their race the exercise of their rights to vote. The black vote that still remained was not trained and educated, but further debauched by open and unblushing bribery or force and fraud until the Negro voter was thoroughly inoculated with the idea that politics was a method of private gain by disreputable means. And finally, now, today, when we are awakening to the fact that the perpetuity of Republican institutions on this continent depends on the purification of the ballot, the civic training of voters, and the raising of voting to the plane of a solemn duty with the patriot, with which a patriotic citizen neglects to his peril and to the peril of his children's children, in this day, when we are striving for a renaissance of civic virtue, what are we going to say to the black voter of the South? Are we going to tell him that politics still is a disreputable and useless form of human activity? 
Are we going to induce the best class of Negroes to take less and less interest in government and to give up their right to take such an interest without a protest? I'm not saying a word against all legitimate efforts to purge the ballot of ignorance, pauperism, and crime. But few have pretended that the present moment for disenfranchisement in the South is for such a purpose. It has been plainly and frankly declared in nearly every case that the object of the disenfranchising laws is the elimination of the black man from politics. Okay. <clears throat> sort of an odd place to stop at, but we're going to go ahead and take a take a break here. This is one of the longer chapters. So we're going to come back tomorrow and continue to read The Souls of Black Folk. Okay, so in this last section, Du Bois begins to paint to us what the fallout was and what the what the experience is like with for black people with the vote and the different mindsets that went into why black people should or shouldn't be allowed to vote and who should or shouldn't be allowed to vote and you know i think that electoral politics is something that is a very controversial subject no matter where you pose it at and you can one of the things that he's pointing out here is talking about the excuse me uh, talking about the seeming seemingly not corruption i mean corruption is a, is a sort of a word but the uh, a loss of respect or a loss of reverence or a loss of values being in politics and politics becoming people having a different perception of politics and people becoming having a different perception of politicians, different perception of the vote. And as a black person, that it, it, the concept of voting is such a loaded subject. It is something that is so layered because of the fact that there are, there's rarely anybody running that has the interest of black people at heart. And you see, that you know the one the before you can before you can truth the, the one of the biggest ways to gain power in electoral politics is a belief that there's power in the a group of the people that's voting uh and so that's sort of what gets people to incentivize politicians to do things or to or to have certain communities included in their platform and when you don't have the ability to vote, there's not people that is that are trying to create platforms or programs or policies that are going to benefit you as a group. And so that's what happened for so many cycles. Uh, and it's like and and now that because of that happening, there are so many black people who it's all, they feel that it's the lesser of two evils. Not only that, both parties that have been involved and just politicians in general have regularly uh uh, exploited, oppressed, marginalized, subjugated black people was politicians who came up with the three-fifth compromise, the politicians who uh, brought the soldiers who were sort of maintaining order for to an extent for so black uh, down in the South when after during Reconstruction. And so those are just some of the thoughts that I have as we were finishing that chapter up. So not chapter up, but finishing the episode up. 
All right, so I'm gonna we're gonna end this episode. Share this whatever platform you're listening to it on, and we'll be back to finish this chapter tomorrow. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.